into this video stream. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie, one of the pastors of our church, the guy who most Sundays gets the privilege of opening up and unpacking God's word for us as we come together. Speaking of the scriptures, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, but you do happen to have or own a digital device, which is practically all of America, uh, you can go to esv.org and you can pull up the translation that we'll be walking through this morning. As you're turning there, um, if you're curious as to why we are live streaming and are, are on the digital platform only this morning, uh, I would encourage you to shoot an email to someone on our staff and let us add you to our database because we have um, shared that information and unpacked some of that over the last 24 hours. I don't wanna go into that from the pulpit this morning, um, but I would love to be able to keep you updated if you're not a part of our database so that you will know and kind of be able to track with where we're going in the weeks and months to come. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get after it this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in desperate need of a mighty work of your spirit. Going back to last week, would you, would you overwhelm us with the inexpressible gift of your grace in Jesus Christ that we might be filled with all of your fullness, as Paul says, and that that would spill over into to cheerful doxology, cheerful praise for your glory and your glory alone. I ask you to attend the preaching of your word and power this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I've mentioned in recent weeks, this follow-up letter to the church in Corinth, it's, it's really a three-part letter. The first part focusing on Paul's defense of his apostolic authority, chapters one through seven. The second part focusing on sacrificial generosity as an outworking of gospel-formed repentance, chapters eight and nine. The third part, focusing on Paul's call to this rebellious minority in Corinth to repent while they still have time, chapters 10 through 13. So that if this were a Netflix series, as I've been saying for a few weeks now, this morning would mark the beginning of season three, which has led some scholars to, to actually question the apostle Paul. I don't know if you're familiar with the Back to the Future trilogy, but I think for those of us who are, I think we could all agree that the, the third movie was a little strange. To see Doc and Marty McFly in cowboy getup and garb, that was a little weird for all of us. Like nothing weird about the first one, nothing weird about the second one with the sports almanac. That was actually kind of fun and cool. But, but that third one, you know, that, that brings some questions to bear, I think, for, for those who established uh, that trilogy for us to partake of. That's how some people view these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, an unnecessary addition to an already well-written letter. After all, going back to last week, Paul ends chapter nine with these glorious words, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, exclamation point. Hey, that's, a, that's a really great way to end a letter with this declaration of grateful praise for God's glorious grace, the inexpressible gift of the immeasurable riches of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And yet, Paul doesn't end things there, but rather takes the better part of four chapters, as we're gonna see over the course of the next several weeks, to address those who remain in opposition to his gospel and his apostolic authority in the church in Corinth. 
those having resisted his authority over the church and having asserted themselves as apostles. Picking up in verse one, Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul was being accused of being inconsistent, perhaps even two-faced, bold in his writings, sheepish in person, operating in the weakness and powerlessness of the flesh. An accusation that would not be without merit in our cultural moment, right? As many of us hide behind our keyboards and say things that we would never say to a person's face. Social media has, has turned us into a commenting society as opposed to a conversational society, which has only been enhanced in the midst of COVID-19. It's one of the reasons that you may see me disappear from social media for the month of July. What I'm finding is that there are things that can be posted that are true, and yet they don't get at all of the layers of complexity that have to do with that particular issue or talking point. And therefore, there have been times that I've said things that I would stand by to this day that I've actually then gone back and removed because I don't think it is comprehensive enough to deal with the issue. That's what a commenting culture will do as opposed to a conversation, an actual dialogue or discussion with another human being. But, but that's not the Apostle Paul's posture in all of this as though he were somehow hiding behind the, the quill and parchment, you might say. Paul's aim is to, to exercise meekness and gentleness, verse one, without abdicating his apostolic authority. The trouble is that not everyone perceives meekness and gentleness to be assets. We've talked about this in the, the Beatitudes study. Some, some actually see those things as liabilities, evidences that, that one has no business in a position of leadership. The trouble with that kind of thinking is that it declares Jesus Christ himself to be an unworthy leader. Right? We, we know the famous verse from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus has come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, there it is, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. First Peter 2.23, Peter says, when he was reviled, that is Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It was Jesus himself who said, looking at the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Going back a few weeks ago to our study of Matthew chapter five, A.W. Pink says, meekness causes the believer to bear patiently those insults and injuries which he receives at the hands of his fellows and makes him ready to accept instruction or admonition from the least of the saints, moving him to think highly of others than of himself. Meekness enables the Christian to endure provocations without being inflamed by them. He remains cool when others get heated. Meekness learns and listens rather than always proclaiming and declaring. Meekness isn't brash or harsh, but rather gentle and composed. It's, it's actually a sign of good leadership, not deficient leadership. That like Jesus, Paul doesn't feel this sort of pressure to give himself over to posturing, to react out of insecurity. He's perfectly secure 
in the identity that he has in Jesus Christ and is therefore able to walk in the same kind of meekness and gentleness in which Jesus walked. All the while exposing the folly of his opponent's thinking, there's an apologetic to this, by aligning himself with Jesus Christ. So that to poke fun at meekness and gentleness is to poke fun at Jesus. That Christ-likeness is not a liability, it's a grace. Paul goes on in verse three to say, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I mean, make no mistake about it. We've seen this throughout this letter. Paul understands himself to be a finite human being, his very own body living proof of man's frailty scarred by countless beatings. But Paul also understands that it's precisely in the weakness of the human condition that God's surpassing power is put on display. That Paul doesn't need the the worldly weapons of rhetorical skills and charisma, often wielded in the name of self-serving prideful ambition. Now, Paul operates according to the power of the Holy Spirit, having divine power to destroy strongholds, he says, including arguments, including lofty opinions that present obstacles to knowing God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses one through five, the prequel, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. A power that Paul unashamedly declares over and over and over again, the power to shine into darkness and overcome it. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses five and six, Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ a divine and supernatural light, a divine and supernatural power so that God and God alone is worthy of the glory and no one else. It's by his grace and power that lost sinners are saved. It's by his grace and power that sinful thought patterns are brought into submission to the one true king. Charles Spurgeon once wrote of the Christian, before he he became a Christian, He called evil good and good evil. He substituted darkness for light and light for darkness. He substituted bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But now when he is in difficulty about a moral question, he asks his Lord. Now, if pleasure tempts him, he judges whether it is sweet to his Lord. If a certain doctrine is stated, he weighs it not in the balances of his own thoughts, much less in scales of popular opinion, but asks, what did my master say? 
What would the Lord Jesus think of this? He suspends his own judgment for his master's judgment. Going back to to chapter two, it's that language of triumphal procession for God's glory and by God's grace, rescued from, from the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son, now marching to the cadence of the gospel, lips declaring, lives displaying the beauty of Jesus Christ, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, the fragrance of a crucified and risen savior, the fragrance of grace and truth, the fragrance of God's power made perfect in weakness, the fragrance of God's sufficient grace in suffering. I would ask you this morning, have you you met this Jesus who sets captive sinners free? I invite you to turn to him in faith and trust this morning. Paul goes on in verse seven to say, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul begins here to to respond to the the criticism of his refusal to lean into the polished rhetorical devices of his day in an effort to impress others, unlike other church leaders. Declaring his aim in building up the church in Corinth, not destroying her. That's what godly church leadership does. It seeks to edify. It seeks to build up, to point the sheep to the all-sufficient good shepherd and the satisfaction that's found in him alone to help people of God grow into Christ's likeness for his glory. He continues in verse nine, I I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters for, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. On on the one hand, it's fascinating to think about this. Paul's opponents actually helped to make the argument for the legitimacy of his apostolic authority in declaring his very letters to be weighty and strong. I mean, I wonder if they knew they were describing the scriptures when they talked about Paul's letters that way. Weighty and strong, supremely authoritative, and divinely inspired. So that the very words of Paul's opponents, they're, they're actually an argument for Paul's apostleship. On the other hand, Paul was being scrutinized on the basis of his human frailty and less than impressive uh, rhetorical skills things seen by Paul's opponents as disqualifying, going back to the earlier chapters of this letter. They couldn't couldn't get their minds around this idea of God's strength made perfect in weakness, showing that the power at work in our lives and our ministries is not owing to us, but to him. That he and he alone might get the glory. In writing, Paul possessed the apostolic authority of a biblical author in person, a weak man showing the surpassing power of a strong God. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We've looked at this in this series, very famous verse. 
But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, Paul says, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's a better way to live. It's a freer way to live. Paul's opponents were were comparing themselves to one another as a standard of determining their worth, a miserable way to go about life, a miserable way to go about ministry, seeking validation on the basis of worldly standards and structures, always on trial, constantly looking for the validating verdict. Not Paul. Paul knew true freedom, the the freedom from bondage to the fragile human ego that's found in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite Tim Keller quotes, he says, it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. Perhaps that's what some of us need to be reminded of this morning so that we don't keep needlessly chasing after something that's already ours in Christ. Paul continues in verse 13, but we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. This is a man who had planted the gospel in the city of Corinth out of the soil of which a church was birthed. Again, a declaration of his apostolic authority, the founding pastor and planter of this very church. Paul's longing, he tells us, it's to plant more churches where the gospel hasn't yet been preached while his opponents wanna disrupt and destroy a church where the gospel has already taken root. How much more work for the sake of the gospel could be done in the world if there weren't those trying to devour the church from the inside where the gospel's already been planted? Paul closes out this, this chapter essentially with this call to set aside ego and to look to Christ and Christ alone for commendation. He says in verses 17 and 18, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul cites uh, Jeremiah 9 here, verses 23 and 24, a passage that, that warns against boasting in one's own wisdom and abilities. There's something there for us, I think. A lot of boasting going on right now in our, in our society, a lot of virtue signaling. Look at me, look at how I'm handling COVID-19. Aren't I virtuous? Or look at me and how I'm handling the swirling waters of racial tension. Aren't I virtuous? Can I just say this? The only boasting in heaven will be a boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter four, verse eight. I'm just gonna wash you with the water of God's word this morning. Revelation chapter four, verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Revelation chapter four, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation five, verses nine and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation seven verses nine and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We boast in the father, we boast in the son and we boast in the Holy Spirit, the triune God but the one who boasts, boasts not in himself or herself, but in the Lord, the only one truly worthy of worship and praise, which will only happen as we more deeply embrace the truth that the Lord's commending is what truly matters. God's commendation, that's all that matters in the end. The identity that's ours in Jesus Christ, which frees us like the apostle Paul to walk in meekness, and gentleness rather than insecurely seeking validation through others' assessment of our worth. I'll leave you with these words this morning from the hymn writer Isaac Watts, who once wrote, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save, meaning unless it's in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. In a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna worship through song, invite you to allow, allow God's sung word to, to wash over you. I invite you to, to sing, to boast in the Lord in worship through, through song. Let's lift our voices to this God who's worthy of our boast this morning. We're not gonna take communion as we do this live stream thing, but I do invite you to, to pause for a moment at some point over the course of these next couple songs and, and just think on the broken body and shed blood of Jesus with, without which the verdicts, coming back to Keller's quote, would be hopeless for us. Our, our hope is in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's because of who he is and what he's done that, that we can now walk not in the pursuit of approval and commendation with respect to God and others, but we can walk from a position of approval that's already been given us in Jesus Christ. So I just invite you to stop and to think about his broken body and shed blood and, and what that means for you in terms of your acceptance by the living God.